you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. This is episode number 287. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's fa- favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we were talking about how to find 420-friendly Airbnbs, Jeopardy fans not so into the joints, the Delaware Democratic governor vetoing a legalization bill, how the industry is facing a product safety problem, tax confusion in Albuquerque, a cannabis smuggling pigeon, cannabis cafes coming to Massachusetts, New Jersey slanging lots of weed its first month of sales, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. Rico, you've got a fun story today. I can't wait to hear it. Oh, I do, Susan. I do. So uh, my story is coming out of Green State, and it's 420-friendly Airbnbs, popular stays, and how to find them. Uh, So I want to start off by giving a huge congrats to all the High Times 100 most influential honorees that gathered downtown Los Angeles last night. It was great seeing some of the most influential industry people from around the globe on all sides of the industry, lifestyle, business, wellness, and politics all in one place. Um, When I made the list back in 2019, a major part of why is due to a major pillar of my pre-pandemic businesses, uh, producing events and parties for celebrities, C-suite execs, investors, and pro athletes interested in the cannabis industry. But three years ago was a different time, and a lot of my clients and friends from the corporate non-cannabis world were too bougie to go to a sesh or too public facing and didn't want to be seen or caught on camera at major functions with a blunt in their hand. So they had a lot of money and at least 
a huge interest in weed. So I created a way for everyone to benefit. Long story short, I built a in, built up an inventory of consumption-friendly Airbnb and Verbo, um, penthouses, mansions, art galleries, and various other private spaces. Worked out deals with the owners and bolstered relationships with a bunch of companies uh, that I'd be down to sponsor. Put it this way, if you attended multiple consumption-friendly events in LA prior to March 2020, uh, there was a decent chance I was involved with one of them, either hosting, emceeing, or um, I helped on the back end, providing access to the space, sourcing sponsors, products, uh, or even attendees, different times indeed. So um, today's story from Green State just falls right in line with all of that. And it's um, about how to find weed-friendly Airbnbs, whether it's for an event or you're just traveling and want to be able to relax without pissing off room service or chancing that $250 smoke cleaning fee upon checkout. Uh, We talk a lot about weed tourism on the show and uh, bud and breakfasts are beginning to pop up everywhere. These are a few good tips to help with that search. Uh, Most state laws require you to use cannabis on private property only. Um, Airbnb owners labeling themselves cannabis friendly don't mind you using cannabis on their property, but most won't even put that in their listing. Uh, So how do you know if they're uh, 420 friendly? Search terms. Um, Per the article, um, Airbnb has no policy against the use and possession of cannabis on properties as long as the cannabis consumption is illegal in the state, uh, which the Airbnb exists. Uh, but Airbnb does not make it easy for you to find them. Uh, there's no cannabis filters when choosing a property. So sometimes hosts will write, uh, quote unquote, cannabis friendly or something similar um, in either the title or description of the listing. Green State also uh, listed some go- good Google terms to use um, that could help out with your search. 420 friendly, cannabis friendly, green friendly, smoking allowed, marijuana friendly, smoking friendly, smoking and Mary Jane are just some of them. Uh, and if you're in a popular weed city, another thing you could do is just ask the owner or property manager if you have like an open air spot or something. Chances are um, they've been asked a million times before you and they'll be cool about it and straight up about what their policies are and how lax the enforcement is. Uh, but if you but you want to be safer, uh, then sorry and respect the property. So always ask. Um, they also listed a few of uh, the most popular listing na- listings nationwide in the article. And there's some pretty cool spots, including one um, is an old summer camp cabin with acres of land saran- surrounding it in Harrison, Maine. Um, our very own uh, Adelia Carrillo uh, is a good resource in that lane also. Uh, but another site I wanted to point out that was built by some uh, good friends of mine uh, to help get around Airbnb's refusal to use cannabis uh, as a search filter is Indica. So it's I-N-N-D-I-C-A.com, which is kind of like an Airbnb clone database uh, for bud and breakfasts and consumption-friendly listings. But um, I know a few of of our other correspondents and folks in the audience do a lot of uh, industry industry events and parties. If there's any tips you'd like to add, please help us out and help all the people in the audience too. This is Rico Lameet, the dopest dad on the street for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What say you, Susan? What are some tips you have for people that want to throw parties? Yeah, Rico, you know, we threw a launch party at an Airbnb and not only was the property owner pretty chill, but because it was going to be a pretty sizable event, we also, you know, solicited the neighbors to get their buy-in. Um, and this was in a really crowded neighborhood. I was pretty impressed that it went off without a hitch given like parking situations. But, you know, if you're going to throw parties at an Airbnb, that's somebody's property, somebody's home, somebody's neighborhood. Just be smart, be green, make sure you check with folks and do the right thing in that regard. And then as a loophole, 
you know, you guys can get Grassdoor to partner with you. If you're going to have an event and you're going to be showcasing brands, we were able to get Grassdoor to understand what brands were going to be at our event, where our event was, and they had the truck teed up so that there was very short delivery times. While the truck just can't sit there like an ice cream truck, it has to go away and come back every time there's an order. But if you kind of prompt them that there's going to be a multitude of orders at this location, they kind of stay frosty and your folks are getting their products within 10 to 15 minutes. So, yeah, definitely I think this is the way of the future of partnering with airbnbs and letting the property owner know what your intentions are so that we can all share in the joy yeah Guy, um, I, think you, I think you brought up a good point there uh Guy, like partnering with a, a grass or a local delivery services is a good way to cultivate um, better uh, community uh, um, interaction and also to help out with some of those sponsors too um, a lot of like local brands and you can help uh, cultivate those relationships between the delivery services and different brands you're working with could you get them on the, on the shelves so it's a win-win for everybody involved I also wanted to share, you know, I love Rico that you said Indica. Uh, they are definitely a great resource. Also, Bud and Breakfast is another great resource that has been around for a long time as well. So those Correct. are two great resources when it comes to Airbnb, cannabis, Bud and Breakfast friendly places. Thank you for catching that, Adelia. I know I, I, I forgot one. I've been doing cannabis events for over a decade, and I have always been 100% transparent with anyone that I'm signing a lease with, including uh, the homes that I, I have lived in. You've just got to, you know, they're out there. They've always been out there. You can find them. You've just got to be transparent. And thank you for uh, what you said, Guy. And thank you for the story, Rico. And if they tell you you can't smoke, tell them to go fuck themselves. Something like that. <laughs> Something like that, but not quite that. Yeah. Oh my god. Let's <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep it moving. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh sorry. Go oh, ahead. You got it. Go ahead. Oh, yep. We go to the next story. Yes, please. All right. So he's the industry's longest continuously operate uh, operating retailer, and. Um, also known as the cannabis industry's very own Kaiser Brose. Um, Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on, everybody singing. Go ahead. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this joint's for you. Happy birthday, brother. Jason Beck, oh, what news you got you for us? Thank you guys so much. And happy best day of the year out there to everybody out there. Today, my story comes out of Delaware, where the Delaware governor, John Carney, vetoes a marijuana legalization bill, and he's a Democrat. Delaware Governor John Carney on Tuesday voted, vetoed a bill to legalize possession of up to one ounce of marijuana by adults for adult use, drawing the wrath of fellow Democrats who have fought for years to make weed legal. In vetoing the measure, Carney reiterated his previously expressed concerns about legalizing adult use cannabis, Concerns that did not dissuade fellow Democrats from pushing the legislation through the General Assembly, and good for them. 
this uh, this Democratic governor says, I recognize the positive effect marijuana can have for people with certain health conditions. And for that reason, I continue to support the medical marijuana industry in Delaware. Carney said in returning the bill to the state house, I supported decriminalization of marijuana because I agree that individuals should not be imprisoned solely for the possession and private use of small amounts of marijuana. And today, thanks to Delaware's decriminalization law, they are not. That said, I do not believe that promoting or expanding the use of adult use marijuana is the best in the best interest of the state of Delaware, especially our young people. Questions about the long-term health and economic impacts of adult use cannabis use, as well as serious law enforcement concerns, remain unsolved. Carney's veto comes just days after legislation to establish a state-run marijuana industry in Delaware failed to clear the state house for a second time. The Democrat-controlled chamber voted 23 to 15 on, on Thursday to approve the bill, which, which fell two vote, votes shy of the required supermajority. The proposal requires a three-fifths majority in both the House and Senate because it creates a new tax consisting of a 15% levy on retail cannabis sales. Last week's vote came two months after a similar measure failed in the House on a 23 to 14 vote and just hours after Carney's office received the companion legalization bill. Without legalization, the creation of a state-run pot industry is a mute issue. It's unclear whether Democratic lawmakers will try to override Carney's veto, which would be a rare occurrence. The last time Delaware lawmakers held a vote to override a veto was in 1990. The last time they succeeded was in 1977. When the House and the Senate uh, vetoed or voted to override then Governor Pete DuPont's veto on the state budget bill, Representative Ed Olsinki, a Newark Democrat and chief sponsor of of the bill, said in a statement that he was deeply disappointed by Carney's decision and will review his options. Senate Democrats echoed Olsinki's assertion that Carney had chosen to ignore the will of Delawareans. The members of the Delaware General Assembly have been fighting for years to end the failed war on cannabis, and we will not be stopped by this latest setback. Read a statement from the chief from the Senate sponsor, Trey Party, and Senate President Dave Sicola. Betsy Moran, chairwoman of the Delaware Democratic Party, said she was confident that lawmakers could trump Carney's veto and make legalization a reality. They say last year we went as far as to include it in a party platform which passed unanimously at the 2021 state convention. Marion said in a statement, Delaware voters have further solidified their voice on a matter by electing Democratic candidates to the legislature that supported legalization. We are confident those legislators will override the veto, knowing they have the support of the Delaware Democrats. And I just have to ask myself, I wonder how much did Joe Biden influence this Delaware governor? And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. <laughs> That's parting shots at, 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 at fucking Biden at the end there, Jason. I'm just saying he's he's a prohibitionist and Delaware is his home state. Such a dumb move. I'm afraid of carnies and now I know why. What an idiot. Come on, guy. It's 2022. Right. I feel and bad for all the Delawareans that are lacking of having a cannabis industry in their home state. I feel very bad for them today. Me too. Just means they're going to keep going across state borders and giving their good tax money to other states because Delaware doesn't seem to want it. 
Well, luckily, it only takes about 30 minutes to drive across Delaware, so you can go anywhere. True. So that makes it even dumber. Yep. It's just ridiculous. At this point, isn't it isn't it damn near political suicide to do some shit like this? You would think. I mean, maybe maybe follow the money and you'll find out why, right? Where is it? Pharmaceuticals. I, gu- I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see when Governor Carney runs for re-election. Well, if he says he's trying to protect the young people, he sounds an awful lot like Doctor Oz talking about people losing their mojo. And he's a donkey, Christopher. Means nothing. Well, doc, yeah, yeah, means yeah. means nothing, because if you want to get into that, then boy, we're going to take the Republicans down hard. So be careful. Yeah, Donald Trump was a donkey too at one point. Remember that? Oh, come on, Rico. He's still he's still a jackass. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep smoking the news. I'm smoking a joint for you, Jason. Happy birthday, man. Oh, or, I mean, happy for you, JB. Happy boof day, Jason Beck. Yeah, there's nothing boof about anything I smoke. Just know that. But nonetheless, political strategist by day and baker by night, a few female multitasker who can not only bake up a storm, but also knows how to make the sausage on Capitol Hill. She's the founder of Panaptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider. Taking off the apron, it's Gretchen Gailey. What did you cook up for us this morning, Gretchen? Uh, Well, good morning, Jason Beck, and happy birthday. Uh, My story is coming today from The Hill. Uh, and the headline is Cannabis Industry Faces Product Safety Concern. Cannabis varieties with identical names can differ widely in the chemicals they contain, leaving customers in danger of unpredictable, unpleasant, or unwanted effects, a new study has found. The prevailing labeling system is not an effective or safe way to provide information about these products, according to Brian Keegan of the University of Colorado Boulder. Even in six states where the drug is legal and regulated, Product names and mandatory labeling requirement give customers little insight into the potential impacts of the products they are about to purchase, according to the study published in uh, PLOS 1. Uh, Different cannabis strains have widely divergent effects, with some better suited to aid sleep or relieve pain, and others indicated to increase appetite or alleviate depression. But by surveying 90,000 samples across six states, the CU Boulder team found that neither variant names nor classic distinctions, bore much consistent resemblance to the chemical composition and therefore effects of a given product. Uh, Two similarly named plants from different dispensaries, in other words, were liable to have quite different impacts. A lack of predictability that poses a real challenge for an industry that is trying to professionalize itself. A farmer can't just pick up an apple and decide to call it a red delicious, uh, said the study co-author Nick uh, Jai Combs, who runs the science department at cannabis marketplace, leafly.com. Uh, but that is not the case for the cannabis industry. Um, if you're wondering why I read this story today, because of um, pretty much it's bullshit, uh, or we all know it's true. And what, what really bothered me by this is that this is the kind of journalism right now uh, that is what is being seen on the Hill. The Hill is a publication that people read on Capitol Hill. And if this is the wonderful insight that is being provided to our lawmakers, uh, this is why uh, cannabis is going nowhere. Um, And I really would hope that uh, journalists on the Hill step up their game and actually start to cover things um, a bit more in depth and, you know, with a bit more uh, a substance. Um, and, And if this is 
breaking news to cannabis uh, folks. It's just insane. I mean, the, on top of the headline, it says just in like this is, you know, some great revelation uh, that uh, labeling standards lack and who knows what you're getting from one state to another. It's just ridiculous if this is the first time uh, this is really an insight for people on the Hill. Uh, this scratching for cannabis uh, or cannabis. What is what's our name? State of cannabis. These are. I'm on a lot of drugs. I'm kind of sick. <laughs> oh, we'll get <coughs> better. Um, we've got uh, Stephanie up from the audience. Stephanie, did you want to weigh in on Gretchen's headline? You are on mute, Stephanie. Gretchen, you got to get off of those state sanctioned drugs and start using weed. What does weed do for allergies? Does that help? Fuck yeah, it does. Yeah. It makes you cough all that bullshit out of your lungs. All of trade, trade, that hay, trade that hay fever in for grass fever. Can you guys hear me now? Milk local, feel better. Yes, we can hear you, Stephanie. Good morning, good morning, everybody. Yeah, I'm on drugs too, as I said, Gretchen. Uh, but yeah, we just went to the first product recall here in Oklahoma, so that's their first one. Dr. Anna had done a study on cultivars up in Colorado where she took like four different samples of Blue Dream Jack to Girl Scout cookies, and none of them were the same. So yeah, there's personally, it's just growers grabbing everything, putting their name on it, and calling it their own so they can look different and be product or price points on on the market so i think that's going to be a big push like you said this is what the capital scene it's just pushing us more into ip protection of plant varietals and pharma is going to come in and say this is why we can't let them handle this because they can't even label stuff correctly so i agree with you we need to actually get some more education out there thanks guys good morning everyone i i agree with everything that's been said and yeah that labeling situation is is so inaccurate, um, you know, when they're saying indica versus sativa, it really only comes down to about five terpenes. So, you know, we have to be more specific and say what cannabinoids are there, what terpenes are there, um, and, and get away from strain names. Right. Well, it also opens up companies for, for personal injury lawsuits. Because if I get, you know, if I take a sativa and I actually ended up falling asleep while driving, boom. You know, we could use that against uh. people in courts of law. So <laughs> that is that is absolutely not going to happen. When you consume cannabis, you've made a voluntary choice. Uh, there's not going to be products liability for the mislabeling of sativa and indica. That is a huge stretch. And like, why not? Wait, 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 wait. So Brandon, so a dumbass, you know, buys hot coffee from McDonald's voluntarily spills it on himself and he was able to see the shit out of mcdonald's for getting burned uh well, yeah that's uh, because I mean, the coffee was too hot the coffee well, was, too was, hot. was too hot it was ne- that was gross le- negligence to serve the coffee that hot is it, is it negligence gross negligence to breed stuff that's you know so high in, in thc or something that it puts someone to sleep well another one it could be labeled mis mislabeled and then somebody could claim a psych you know a psyche or a psychiatric or a psychiatric break or something like that like whoa this stuff made my you know ADHD go off whack, et cetera, et cetera. If you, if you drink a hundred proof liquor and get in a car accident and you claim, oh, I thought it was 60 proof, the alcohol company is responsible. That is a argument that's never going to win in any court in the United States. You consumed it. That was a voluntary choice. You don't have to consume the medicine. You don't have to consume the cannabis. You're making the choice to consume it. That's on you what happens afterwards. Hey, hey, I'm with Brandon on this. Yeah, I, want to, I just want to be, for clarity, 
Potency is not hopefully the issue. I mean, testing for potency and labeling potency should be fairly consistent as well as pesticides, mold, and that kind of stuff. I appreciate that there's some confusion around indica sativa hybrid and folks are pollen chucking and putting whatever name they want. That is a problem that we need to clean up. But potency of a product, I can't imagine an illegal state, whether they have biotrack or metric, that they are not getting accurate test results around the potency of their products. Agreed. But isn't the issue here about um, having like Blue Dream in California versus New York and having those two products be different and therefore yeah. that's a problem? I think that yeah. problem is that's, caused that's, by... That's, that is a real issue, right? That's oh, oh, a problem, but... It's more the streaming I, is what it touched on. Hold on this but, sort but, of I, problem I happens with fish all across we, the United States, mislabeled um, fish in grocery stores. Are people suing the grocery stores? and the fish producers? Are we saying that pharma needs to come in and completely take over the fish industry in the United States? No. So right. it doesn't need to happen in cannabis either. I think yeah. they are. Yeah. I think there is like some lawsuits going against the big fish producers, man. <laughs> right now. You know, I, 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 look, I agree with Brandon. It's like, the, the public safety issue is around potency, around pesticides, around bad stuff. But just because your blue dream on the West Coast isn't the same on the East Coast, that's that's because, hey, we don't have centralized processing. Even myself as a right. processor, I'd have to struggle to make sure stuff is consistent because it's going to be two separate manufacturing facilities. And yeah, you can keep your SOPs tight, but it's also, you can't even have the same cultivar. So it's not like my farms in Humboldt get to ship to the East Coast. So we should expect some difference in the products, given how the supply chain works or how the manufacturing chain works. But I just want to highlight that the safety of cannabis is still intact. And there's a difference between safety and inconsistency of the product, I think. Yeah. Well, and I'm sorry to reel this all back in. The point of me telling this is idiotic story here was just that this is the level of education that lawmakers are receiving in their news. I mean, this is breaking news to these people that Blue Dream is not the same in California as it is in New York. Um, and that's why cannabis legislation moves so slow. The Hill knows nothing. We need to educate lawmakers. I'll tell you, the Hill, thank you. No, matter, thank you. no matter what state you're in, Blue Dream is booth. Okay, uh, okay, Gretchen, thank you so much for bringing it back. All I can say is, and let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. This Northern California-based pot-smoking PhD somehow remains optimistic in the midst of all of this absolute cannabis industry chaos. But you know, glass half full, glass half empty. Why is there still liquid in that glass anyways? That whole bullshit conversations for folks unwilling to finish their damn drinks. Come to the stage next is political economist and founder of the Mahajan Consulting, Medica Mahajan. What you got for us today? Good morning. Thank you so much, Rico. Happy birthday, Jason. Uh, my story today is First month of adult use cannabis sales in New Jersey brings in $24 million. And this is by Sophie Nieto Munoz. One month, <laughs> One month into New Jersey's cannabis industry launch, consumers have purchased $24 million in recreational weed, regulators said during a meeting on Tuesday. And another five medical only dispensaries will soon be able to start selling adult use cannabis joining the 12 existing dispensaries that started selling on April 21st, the day after 420, how sad. The new locations will be Garden State Dispensaries in Woodbridge, Union and Eatontown, the Apothecarium in Lodi, and Ascend in Montclair. 
quote, it's really only a beginning and I think it shows there's a lot of growth left in this market, said Jeff Brown, executive director of the Cannabis Regulatory Commission, which oversees the state's marijuana market. The $24 million in sales at the 12 dispensaries that are allowed to sell at this point and a 13th location that didn't get final approval until about two weeks ago is lower compared to other states. In Arizona, which launched its market at 73 facilities, the state reported $32 million in sales in the first full month that that market was open. In New Mexico, which launched in April with at least 100 stores, sales were almost $40 million. The New Jersey dispensaries brought in about $5 million per week collectively, and the commission expects that number to grow as more licenses are approved. A total of 46 conditional licenses were awarded at Tuesday's meeting, 22 for growers, 13 for manufacturers, and, and 11 for adult-use retailers. Four testing labs were also approved. It's not clear when the adult-use retailers can begin sales because they still have to clear some local regulatory hurdles. And the commission also removed the medical-only rule for licenses it awarded in the 2019 application cycle, which means instead of operating at least one year as a medical dispensary, licensees need only to prove that they have enough supply for both medical and adult use demand. Brown said the commission will issue quarterly reports starting next month on the number of licensees, this is interesting, um, this data collection, on the number of licensees who are people of color, women, and veterans. And the state's cannabis law requires those, those groups comprise 30% of licensees. What's your take on the progression of cannabis policy, licensing, and sales in the Garden State? I'm Menika Mahajan, reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. So each licensee did about $2 million in sales in one month? Uh, not quite. It was $5 million collectively. Oh, per week, yes. So, uh, yeah, I, that would be the average, yes. Wowza. Clocking lots of dollars. Dirty jerseys. So we found out yesterday that several of the social equity um, retailers got awarded license yesterday. So that's great. And um, however, the ones that have already been in the marketplace on the medical side, they are the ones that are winning right now. And um, so it's a it's a catch up game to catch up with them. But it's um, New Jersey is going to be huge. Did you that's say huge, Roz? I said huge. huge. It's going to be huge. <laughs> uh, Roz, I, I agree. I think uh, New Jersey is definitely going to be a monster. Do you think a lot of that is uh, going to be taken away once New York gets really, really online? No, because you got stop, so you got Jersey, and Jersey goes into the south of Jersey, goes into Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is farting around about adult use. So you're going to end up having a lot of folks. Philly is literally... 25 minutes from Trenton, New Jersey. Um, shout out to Tahir Johnson, who is, he's the DEI uh, director for the USCC. He and his team won two licenses, one in Trenton yesterday and one in Ewing. And so, um, and then there's Woflow that's in Trenton as well, which is also a social equity um, operator um, that they are building out their, their retail. So I think Jersey is gonna be hot. I think you got Delaware there, you got Pennsylvania there. Um, and so you're going to have an influx of people that cross the state line, um, even though New York is, you know, of course, going to be a really hot, hot market. Sorry. A big shout out to Tahir. Um, he got a license. He got today. yesterday two, two, dude, two. I got to give the brother a call. And listen, and, the, and the, listen, and he partnered with um, Wanda James and Simply Pure. So I'm so super oh, proud of them. 
So Wanda James, you guys, if you don't know, she's a dispensary owner, and one, she was the leading, the first black-owned dispensary in color. I mean, uh, in the in the U.S. or you know, I shouldn't say in the U.S., but she was uh, one of the first ones. She's based out of Colorado, um, so she's been tried and true and around. And so now we're starting to see brands that are like, okay, we're Black-owned, social equity-owned, we're in one state. How do we go and expand to other states? And so they partnered together, and so now they're Simply Pure New Jersey, and they won two licenses. So it's really awesome. Yeah, I think uh, Wanda Wanda was uh, was the first. She and her husband were like the first um, legal black dispensary owners in in the uh, in the U.S. US. Yeah. That would be that would be correct, Rico. So, yeah. So, hey, Raz, I wanted to thank you for shouting out WoFlow. You know, I happen to be on the board. That's my nephew and his homies outfit. So they re, they took over an old bank in uh, Jersey. They're redoing that. So when WoFlow opens, you can expect heart, culture, and solventless from day one. Yeah. I love the, the I've been rocking with WoFlow since 2017, dude, when they first came out with the medical and they applied for it really great guys, really, they're passionate about their community. Um, they're going to do some great things. I'm telling you, investors, folks that are investors out here, and if you're sleeping on some of these different um, uh, social equity operators and and brands that are coming out, you shouldn't because they're going to do some fantastic things. And with the market, the way that New Jersey is going to be, it's all going to be about, you know, just customer service and connection to community. And that's where you're going to see the sales go crazy in my in my estimation. Well, great story. We've we've reached the halfway point. I need to relight this room really quickly. We're way over time. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Well, coming up next to the stage, she's the CMO of the award-winning tech platform Event High, co-host of the groundbreaking woman-focused Blunt Brunch event series, and taking us next, it's Adelia Carrillo. Good morning, everyone. Happy birthday, Jason. Today's article is Cannabis Cafes Could Soon Be Coming to Massachusetts. This is by Olivia Hickey and Ryan Trowbridge. Uh, <clears throat> Sorry, for the past few months throughout the United States, uh, you know, I've been reporting about California, Oregon, Colorado, New Jersey, and Michigan as they continue to look at moving forward with consumption lounges. And now we can add Massachusetts to the discussion, but it is still in its very early stages. The Massachusetts Cannabis Control has voted to approve a pilot program for cannabis cafes. They are looking at Springfield being one of the communities that has the opportunity to participate if the bill passes. Now, this past Wednesday, the Massachusetts representatives passed a cannabis equity bill, and as part of that bill, State Senator Adam Gomez said the pilot, that is where the pilot program can be implemented. Um, it's illegal still for you to use cannabis in public spaces, so the uh, social consumption sites need to be created to make sure that in different areas across the street where we have tourism, and you know that 
people come here and maybe want to indulge in some of our uh, dispensaries <clears throat> because obviously it's still not federally legal to acquire cannabis in some states is what Gomez, uh, Gomez explained. Now to give some backstory to the regulations in Massachusetts, uh, for qualifying patients over 18 years of age, they must be appro uh, approved by a physician and certified by the state before they can legally uh, be allowed to possess up to a 60-day supply of cannabis. And for adult use, you must you must be 21 years and older to purchase and grow adult use cannabis. Uh, Massachusetts also law also uh, allows registered medical marijuana patients to grow up to 12 flowering and 12 vegetative cannabis plants in your home. Adult use consumers may grow no more than six plants. Um, it also states that it's illegal to consume medical cannabis in public. You cannot use medical cannabis in any form, including smoking, vaping, or eating in public places or on federal land. And that if you do, um, when it's in your car, you have to keep it in a closed container while on the road, just like alcohol. Now, despite the potential economic benefits, Gomez believes changes uh, still need to be made to the legality of cannabis. I think that uh, I think that we're going to open up the industry for communities to be able to make money off of cannabis, then we have to. We have to end the prohibition entirely, specifically even on low-level drug offenses, specifically having to do with marijuana, Gomez said. So what's next? The bill is now on Gover Governor Charlie Baker's desk and is currently awaiting his signature to become law. From there, it will then be on the local governments and businesses to shape the the social consumption industry. And um, the Western Mass, Mass News, News <laughs> also reached out to Springfield Mayor Dominic Sarno's office for a statement. He said, my administration has already established a very successful, fair, and transparent marijuana licensing selection process. And when the time comes, we will do a careful caution and thorough review as to, as always, to see what is the best interest for our citizens when it comes to public health, safety, and economic opportunities. Now, I would love to hear from the team or those in the audience. Do you think cannabis cafes will have a chance to move forward in Massachusetts? This is Adelia, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I would invite everybody to read this article in the HuffPost, uh, From Beer to Caffeine, The Birth of Innovation. And it was all about, uh, I don't know, it was the 300 years ago during the Age of Enlightenment, people discovered that they, they were only drinking beer and they switched over to coffee and they started hanging out in little coffee shops and that spurred amazing innovation. And I think that we can do the same thing with cannabis cafes. This is so, so exciting. Bring it on. 100% student. I don't think that it's about if, it's about when. It may not happen this round, but it will happen. You know, experiential cannabis is really the next big step for us. Now that, you know, we can legally use it, getting together and commiserating and sharing thoughtful ideas with the use of cannabis is our next step. I'd like to say um, I've actually been to a few uh, gray space um, cannabis cafes in Massachusetts with uh, Victoria Lippman on our team. And um, there's a huge opportunity there. Huge opportunity, good people, good folks in the community. And um, they're already doing things right. Uh, it was really, really cool to see ahead of time. Um, there's no regulations or anything surrounding it, but they were already very, very sanitary, very, very friendly. And um, a lot of the uh, guidelines that we go by here in California, they were already, they had already adopted. So you were at the Trap Kitchen in Massachusetts, Rico? Allegedly. <laughs> yes. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. This amazing storyteller's got a smoother delivery than DoorDash on a Hungover Sunday afternoon. And he's all about getting good information 
and good access to the people. A communication strategist and publisher of the Daily Bugle, excuse me, American Cannabis Report. Up next, Superman of the Sesh, Christopher Smith. What you got for us today, my man? Thanks so much, Rico. Happy birthday, Jason. Hi, Susan. Uh, my story today is from 420 Intel. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a file on me in Washington, or if there wasn't yesterday, there's one now that's because I googled how to smuggle drugs into prison as a background research for my article in the State of Cannabis News Hour today, and that's sure to raise a flag with the rocket scientists at NSA. Don't worry, I won't rat you out as accomplices in this dastardly scheme to make a news story interesting. I ain't no snitch, Jason. In 2019, a Cincinnati couple were arrested for trying to smuggle heroin into prison. Deputies became suspicious after noticing a stain on a square of their Bible, which later proved to be heroin, enough to be broken up into 30 or 40 hits and distributed among inmate population. This is just one way that people have gotten busted trying to smuggle drugs into prison in recent years, a subject on which I am now a Google expert. Others include 20 grams of pot inside a baby's balloon, drugs blended into paint and applying, applied to a coloring book t- marked To Daddy, uh, drugs put inside dead birds and thrown over prison walls. Tennis balls are also used, though I don't think there are too many tennis courts on prison grounds. Underneath stamps of letters, uh, methadone-soaked underwear, and the usual smuggling cavities. You might imagine this category is called hidden internally. But, got it, but, in Peru, the national police have announced that a pigeon has been captured trying to smuggle cannabis into Huancayo Penitentiary. Of course, the only way to announce such bird shenanigans is by using Twitter so you can tweet about it. I know, I'll be here all week. In a tweet, the Peruvian National Police reported officers found the bird, which had a circular package containing marijuana tied around its neck, near the prison's main door. Perhaps parched, the cannabis-carrying bird was spotted this week when it touched down near the administrative building to drink some water from a puddle. Highly highly professional operation. Upon catching the bird, agents saw the delivery package made of light blue fabric that had been wrapped in duct tape. To the surprise of all involved, the package held dry green seeds, stems, and leaves with the characteristic marijuana smell. Media reports, this is big news apparently, media reports indicated the package contained 30 to 40 grams of cannabis, uh, not enough to keep the bird from flying, uh, the recreational form of which remains illegal in Peru. As for medicinal marijuana, growing, importing, and commercialization of the plant is exclusively reserved for the Peruvian state. So the gov in peru controls the weed industry that's not shady citing the national police the global frontier reports that agents with the national penitentiary institute of peru believe that the pigeon had been trained to transport drugs from the outside to the inside of the prison that's some crackerjack investigating right there it's further is suspected that the bird was brought to the area by a relative of an inmate it appears the drugs were destined for the prison's pavilion d where security officials report someone earlier was seen feeding a pigeon. So I know that the State of Cannabis News Hour has a broad circulation around the world. And if you're listening in Pavilion D of Wancayo Penitentiary, the national police are on to your pigeon scheme. You should have used a tennis ball. And I'm done speaking. There's a reason why they call <laughs> pigeons rats with wings. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, right? I'm, I'm just wondering if, if, this, uh, if this pigeon was smuggling a gummy of a half-bitten ear because I'm willing to bet that Mike Tyson is the one that sent the pigeon. 
<laughs> that really connects. That connects a lot of disparate elements. Well, my money. goodness, well, that was good, Jason. Hey, you know, hey, Mike Tyson was a pigeon, pigeon trainer when he was, when he was training to be a boxer in the early '80s. So I remember Mike in the pigeon coop. He, he, he still yeah. got a bunch of pigeons, man. He still got a bunch of pigeons. I saw like a YouTube video of him like like last month or something, and he's still training pigeons. That's his happy That's place. His happy place. Christopher, when you wrote this, did you think we'd end up talking about Mike Tyson and his ear gummies? I didn't think so. I, I'm worried now that we're going to start talking about <laughs> pigeons and Mike Tyson's tigers, though. I'm worried how that ends up. Thank you, Christopher, for your story. It was really wonderful, as usual. And given that most, a lot of people in prison are not there legitimately, I'm all for them having a more pleasant time as they spend their time there. Amen. The pigeons are really activists. Let's go keep smoking the news. Sorry, go ahead. Finish oh, your point. I was going to, this is Mary Clifton. I was just going to comment that, uh, you know, we always talk about cannabis not causing any mortality, no, no deaths due to cannabis, but it did cause an interesting case of chronic sinusitis in a person who was trying to smuggle a small balloon filled with a small amount of weed uh, into the prison through his nose. He ended up uh, inhaling it and thought he just swallowed it, but it actually went into his left sinus. And then after 10 years of chronic sinusitis, Sinus conditions, a ENT finally peered up there and pulled out this nasty old decayed balloon with plant matter in it. <laughs> so, oh my God. So, so, we, so weed can cause sinusitis, just is, to clarify. Gretchen, <laughs> is that what happened to you, Gretchen? Is that why you're having the sniffles? Oh my God, that's you've been, unbelievable. You've been smuggling some weed in your nose? <laughs> I mean, how much weed can you smuggle in one nostril? I mean, not much, but <laughs> hopefully enough. <laughs> Somebody really wanted some weed. Holy shit. And they wow. were out Let's of keep smoking the news. So. Oh my God. Stop sticking shit up your ass, people. But nonetheless. Great advice. Yeah. This beard was born and bred in Michigan. Maybe that's why this beard commands such a presence, because, baby, it's cold outside. So cold that the beard was compelled to move to sunny Long Beach, California, where the beard received a law degree, known in the bar exam as the Brandon Beard Award for high scores. This intellectual IP attorney and CEO of Fruits Labs is none other than Brandon Dorsky. Let's go, Brandon. What do you have for us this morning? Thank you for the colorful introduction, Jason, and happy birthday to you. My headline comes from Cannabis Business Times. Its new report says price, convenience, fuel, illicit cannabis market. And that presumably comes as not a surprise to anyone in this room. A report in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs confirmed that higher prices and inconvenience are some of the primary reasons why legal cannabis sales pale in comparison to the illegal market. A study sought to unpack why the illicit market continues to thrive in many places where cannabis has been legalized, and investigators from the University of Waterloo in Ontario analyzed data from 2019 and 2020 on participants' reporting of their cannabis consumption. The participants were expected to report how much of their cannabis came from legal sources, and if less than 100% came from legal sources, the survey asked these participants to list the reasons why they purchased illegally. The number one answer in Canada was that, quote, legal sources had higher prices. Just under 36% in 2019 and just under 35% in 2020 claim this as their reason. Convenience ranks, convenience ranks pretty high too. 10.6% to 19.8% of respondents selected legal sources were less convenient or legal stores were too far away, there are none where I live, 
as their reasons to purchase illegally. Other reasons included low quality of product in the legal market, a desire to remain anonymous, overall delivery speed, and loyalty to their traditional dealer. David Hammond, a, a professor and research chair at the University of Waterloo said, quote, we also observed differences across jurisdictions and changes over time. Many reasons decreased in later years, which reflects changes in the number of stores and the price of cannabis in Canada and US states that have legalized adult cannabis use. He also noted that cannabis legalization is one of the most notable substance use policy changes in several decades, and that transitioning consumers from illegal to legal retail sources is the primary goal of legalization, and that many of the benefits of legalization, including standardization of product, revenue for legitimate businesses, reducing burdens on the criminal justice system, uh, opened up, opened upon shifting consumers to legal cannabis sources, and that there is surprisingly little empirical evidence on the factors that determine where consumers source their products in the legal market. Hammond went on to advise that future research should focus on how perceived barriers to legal markets shift as the markets mature, and suggested regulators will need to balance public health concerns and criminal justice reform priorities to have a competitive market for legal cannabis in the future. Uh, the article did not really mention the uh, tax structures that impact a lot of uh, United States cannabis markets. Obviously, that cuts to the higher prices, but we've discussed this in this room many times. There needs to be tax relief for there to be a thriving legal market as it compares to the illicit market. You can't expect your average consumer to just pay 2x for the product that they want when they can get it for 1x and there's really going to be no penalty for them purchasing it for the lesser price. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. This is exactly right, Brandon. It's the exact reason why I was out protesting at the SEIU yesterday because the SEIU is one of the main reasons that we haven't got any tax relief in cannabis in California. And Gretchen, I think this is some of the information that our legislators need to hear. Like, and um, a, a, a nod to the stories, uh, we were talking about uh, cannabis beverages yesterday. I see a huge opening for illicit cannabis beverages with $28 per <laughs> pop coming through on those, uh, those, those Boston beers we were talking about yesterday. <laughs> The notion that the federal government is considering an additional excise tax on legal market cannabis has to, is so misguided and will it be such a boon to the illicit market. Like, that absolutely should not happen in the United States. The last thing we need to be doing is making legal market cannabis more expensive than it already is today. I understand inflation is real, but one place where there should not be inflation is in the price of cannabis to the consumer. Politicians are greedy. Well, they're going to bite off their nose to spite their own face. It's ridiculous. It will not work. Greed or not, that's stupid. Unless it's part of a larger strategy. Which, dun, dun, dun. Which, yeah, which would be what, to uh, It's just a prohibition. It's, it's all designed to fail. It's all designed to fail. Good point. To run, a, run us out of business so that hugely capitalized industries that shall be unnamed at the moment uh, can come in and take up the whole thing. Agreed. Shall we keep spoke, smoking the news? Mm -hmm. Yep. Let's keep on doing it. He's a well-known and revered industry OG, a veteran, dope dad, and defender of the culture, never hesitant to speak up for our industry's legacy. Come to the stage next is the co-founder and CEO of the 2022 Emerald Cup champions pop and barkley 
here to bless all our ears with a little G-code gospel. It's Guy Rocourt. What you got for us today, my man? Good morning. Thanks, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Happy birthday, Jason. Uh, another little tax article coming out of the Albuquerque Journal, Businesses Confused on Cannabis Tax. So this article is about, uh, you know, New Mexico and their tax scheme and how, you know, just the state can make mistakes that cause us issues and we're still not viewed as legit citizens, it seems. So dispensaries across New Mexico may owe the state more money depending on how they've taxed their adult use products. Recreational cannabis sales are subject to a cannabis excise tax of 12%, as well as local gross receipt tax on each transaction. But many dispensaries, including Amnesia Dispensary and Accessories in Albuquerque, have combined the two taxes, something the state is saying that they're trying to correct and can leave businesses owing additional money. So basically what they're saying is you need to charge the excise tax. So on a sale of $100, that would be $112. And then on that $112 is how you add the gross receipt tax. So if you were combining the taxes, you would end up paying a little bit less because you'd be putting the entire tax percentage on $100 instead of compounding it. This is literally nickel and diming. Now, mind you, uh, BioTrack, which is the state-run system, our version here in California is um, metric. In New Mexico, they opted to use BioTrack. BioTrack was also combining the taxes because they got misinstruction from the state. So it seems that the state failed to clarify how to actually structure these taxes. Of course, folks went with the more straightforward combining. It's one tra It's one mathematic equation. It's also ends up being a little bit less money. But now the state is saying, no, you guys got it wrong. Also, our track and trace, which is run by the state, also got it wrong. And you guys may owe more money. So for small operators, it could be a thousand or two thousand a month. And for large operators, it could be twenty five thousand to fifty thousand. So again, when we talk about taxes, What's unrealistic here is, you know, economics 101, typically when new industries are coming, adding jobs and bringing revenue to a state, they typically are offered low taxes and incubating periods. And yet we are overtaxed at the outset. That is cannabis shame. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be taxed at all, but these overbearing taxes are still that legacy of just us being marginalized as an industry and it's just intolerable. So to the folks in New Mexico, push back. The state made a mistake. They need to eat that, eat that mistake. If they've clarified it now, maybe going forward, they have a leg to stand on. But it clearly wasn't clarified before, given that the track and trace system implemented by the state was also combining the taxes. So that's just my spiel on that. This is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Taxing taxes just seems so ridiculous. You're taxing a tax. It's un-American. It's, it's, it's un-American. It's, it's, it's an American tradition. No, nah, that's some commie shit, Rico. Yeah, I mean, in what other tax form do you, like, combine taxes? I mean, I, I guess I have, I've had an account for too long, but, like, in our regular taxes, your state and your, you know, federal taxes are just on your income, or, you know, usually it's a combined tax, but to, like, try to up your tax rate by, like, compounding it, like, that seems unusual, no? I'm with you, Gee. It's a, it's a total flaw. It's a fucking total bad policy, bad, bad tax law. Pass safe banking. I thought I just exactly. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they would ta I wish some. they would tax the uh, cannabis businesses like they tax the rich. That's what I wish. 
Yeah, no doubt. And, it, you know, when we talk about safe banking, it's important to note that here we are being taxed at this professional level, expected to do all kinds of math, yet we can't even have proper banking. I mean, it's just so biased. It's insane. I see what you did there, Dr. Felicia, and I dig it. Everyone's just going to start selling Delta 8. Everyone already is selling Delta 8. <laughs> it's not like it's all of a sudden going to be out there and everywhere. It already is. Can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. As they say. Can't keep, can't keep smoking this news, Jason? Let's keep oh, smoking it. Oh, yeah. She's an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. Coming next to the stage is the founder of the cannabis blog and podcast, Shall We Coke? It's none other than Shalina Panu. What do you have this morning for us, Shalina? Thanks so much. Happy birthday, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is National Australian Agency Teams Up with MedTech Company to Develop Psychedelic Medicines. According to a news relief from Ciro, uh, some research has shown that one in every five people living in Australia will suffer a mental illness each year, with more than a third of patients unable to respond to existing treatments. This is where the Australian's national agency, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, has decided to step in by teaming up with Australian med tech companies in developing new psychedelics while also enhancing existing ones. As stated by Benzinga, Ciro has teamed up with Natural Med Tech, which according to their website are developing medicines that break the system management cycle that's all too prevalent in mental health care. We aim to make mental health therapy more effective, engaging and rewarding in order to treat a range of substance and behavioral addictions and promote proactive health and longevity. Mark Hesterman, who is the CEO of Natural MedTech, stated that Ciro's scheduled poison license extension will mean that they can legally make the raw material with we, we need to further our research and development of psychedelic molecules with a view to progressing new drugs to clinical trials. Um, and a Jun professor, Peter Duggan, who works as a scientist for Ciro, stated clinical trials both here and internationally have been using known psychedelics, usually MDMA or psilocybin, um, with impressive results, but there's still much to be learned about how these drugs work and how improvements to their chemical composition could enhance patient outcomes. By working with local industry to improve drug, drug design and the patient experience, Ciro can push Australia into a leadership position in the development of these potentially life-changing medications. This isn't the first time Australia has stepped into the psychedelic space. Back in July of last year, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that the country announced the Psyche Institute, which is a team of researchers from top world universities that plan to take the next steps needed to advance clinical studies of psilocybin, MDMA, and DMT. They are currently being funded $40 million from a North American biotech company that aims to achieve drug registration with the Therapeutics Goods Administration and equivalent overseas regulators. In Australia, there have, been, there have only been clinical trials of DMT ton DMT done while psilocybin and MDMA have had promising results in their small clinical trials. However, in order to prove how effective these substances are, they need to progress to phase three with larger scale trials, which is where the Psyche Institute comes in. Um, adjunct Associate Professor Daniel Perkins of the Psyche Institute stated that the collaboration efforts between all of these top global psychedelic researchers could speed up this process. Perkins stated, we're moving towards the same goal of progressing these substances to registered medicines versus just one university doing it by itself with a limited number of staff and resources. There are a lot of people where pharmaceutical drugs don't work well, if at all, or they have significant side effects. There's a desperate need for new types of treatments. 
The interesting thing about Australia being a top choice to do these clinical trials is because regulators require only notification rather than approvals, such as a sign-off from an ethics committee. The U.S., on the other hand, requires an, requires an approval. The researchers have also been studying um, ayahuasca, finding that it was associated with the decrease in self-reported alcohol and other drug use. Perkin has stated that some mentally ill people who are in need of these treatments are resorting to the black market or flying overseas to take ayahuasca. Although some patients have shown extremely positive results, even the patients have warned how dangerous it is having to fly to different countries to find these substances, which may or may not be legit. However, with these steps taken by researchers and agencies, there is hope for the future that people can one day access these healing treatments right in the comfort of their own home. What are your thoughts on Australia's psychedelic movement? This is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you so much, Shalina. We've reached the top of the hour, unfortunately, but that was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get the podcast. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. Big thank you to all the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Thank you, Rico and Jason, for co-producing the show. And to our pinup girl, Zsa Simone Brown, thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you tomorrow. Don't miss it. Let's do another. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you, too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it today. With the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.